Dear Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness in our life. We thank you for this time of year that we get to remember and to reflect and to make personal, uh, Father, the real reason for this season that you sent your son, uh, Father, to die for us. That you came to take on flesh, Father, to restore our relationship with you. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, I just ask you to open our minds and to soften our hearts. Father, and to let your words flow over us, to seep inside of us. Father, to affect our most inner being so we can learn more about you this morning. Father, we thank you for your son. And it's in his holy and matchless and priceless name that we pray together. Amen. Now, you know we're in a uh, uh, series of sermons called Hashtag Jesus, which we started in the fall, and we're actually going to run through springtime. And during this time, we're going to f- follow um, Christ's earthly ministry. But we don't do that for a history lesson. We're actually doing it with a purpose, and it's really a threefold purpose, and that is to know Jesus more intimately, to be able to follow him more passionately, and to obey him wholeheartedly. That's why we're spending this time together to really understand who the person of Jesus was. And there's no better depiction of that that we find in John 1 that we've been studying for the last four or five weeks. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn there with me to John 1, verses 1 through 18. And as you're doing that, I want to remind you that each of the gospel writers has a specific reason on why they write their letter. We see in Matthew, Matthew wrote as Jesus as the king. Mark wrote as Jesus as the son of God. Luke wrote about Jesus as the son of man. And John, which we're studying right now, wrote as Jesus as the savior. And John's reason for writing his book is found in verse, um, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 where John really lays out that Jesus has done many and marvelous things during his time on earth, all of which are not captured in this book. But the ones that are captured in this book, I write them so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life. That is the purpose that John writes this book. But before he gets into any of the stories about what Jesus did, the miracles performed, any of his travels, where he went, any of those sorts of things, John gives us essentially a theological treatise in the first 18 verses of his writing that really depict and encapsulate the most complete description of who Jesus is in all of the scriptures. In order to start our time this morning, what I want to do is I want to read this responsively, as you have been doing with Ron. I promise to do a better job than I did at the first service when I read part of their part to start. So you guys have been on this now four or five weeks in a row. You guys know that you're all, I'm the leader. I'll start when your verse comes up, you read it and we'll read this together. This is your final exam as this is the final week we're going to do this. So let's pass with flying colors. Okay, here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made. 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He was in the world, and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but he did not receive him. I love that. The children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. All right, I'm giving you guys an A plus final grade. And I'll be happy to report that to Ron when he gets back. In these final four verses of this section of Scripture, John gives us three amazing declarations about who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. And each one of them serves as a, really as a foundational, foundational principle for our beliefs, for Christianity, for really what it's founded upon. But before he gives these um, foundational elements in verses 16, 17, and 18, in verse 15, he reminds us again of who Jesus is and who John isn't. Look at verse 15. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now John is reminding us in terms of world history, Jesus came after him. He was younger. But John is clear to say, but as far as Jesus goes, he is the preeminent one. So all along of what I've been telling you is great, but what Jesus came to do and what Jesus came to say, and what Jesus came to accomplish is far greater than anything in which I was commissioned to do. And then he points us to really verses 16, 17, and 18, which sets up what Jesus came to do. And in that verse, starting in verse 16, we see the first of those foundational truths laid out in verse 16. And this is that Jesus is the source of true satisfaction. Jesus is the true source of satisfaction. Look at verse 16. From the fullness of his grace, we, is we all have received one blessing after another. Look 
look at what John says here. I love this word, from the fullness of grace. From the fullness of grace. What John's saying here is that everything that we have from Jesus, the grace bestowed upon us from Jesus is full. That it is enough for us. That everything that he heaps upon us is full. We're complete in his grace. That he is rich in mercy. He is rich in love. He is rich in wisdom. He is rich in righteousness. He is rich in forgiveness. I can go on and on all afternoon laying out what Christ is rich in. But you could put it this way, that he is a boundless supply of all that any and all sinners would ever need, both here on earth and here in eternity. Paul puts it the exact same way in his letter to the church in Colossia. So when Paul wrote this letter, there was really two primary reasons. One was to encourage the new believers not to fall back in their old patterns in beliefs. And the second reason was to remind the readers that everything in Christ, that everything in Christ is supreme. He is above all. He's everything that we need. That's what he's reminding these new readers. And we see in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell within him. All of God's fullness dwell within Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 2, the second half of verse 2 and into verse 3, so that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, both John and Paul are saying that everything that we need is, supp is supplied through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying in his first part of verse 16. And then look how he finishes this verse. Then he says, have all, we have all, all of us, received one blessing after another. One blessing after another. Never ending. And now I use, my preferred translation is the NIV 84, which this is. But I, when we look at the other translations, I find it interesting how all of them wrestle with this phrase. I think they all capture the essence of what John is trying to say. NIV 84 says one blessing after another. The new NIV says grace in place of grace already given. The King James says grace for grace. ESV says grace upon grace. The Living Bible translation, blessing upon blessing heaped upon us. And then finally, the NLT translates it, one gracious blessing after another. You see, each of these translators are wrestling with this Greek, trying to turn it into modern English. But I think each one of them captures the heart of John's word. And that is, I believe, that God's grace comes to us like waves on a seashore. You ever been on, on, just standing on the beach and no matter how long you sit there, the waves may be closer, they may be a little bit further away, they may be a little higher or a little lower, but they never end. They come one after another 
after another after another. And that is exactly the way God's grace is with us in our lives as believers, is that he washes his grace over us minute by minute, day by day, week by week. His grace is flowing over us. And it doesn't matter what our life circumstance is, that those waves of grace continue to shower over us one after another after another. So that is what verse 16 is capturing, is this essential foundation, is that Jesus is the source of true satisfaction. His endless waves of grace crashing over us day by day by day. Now in verse 17, we see the second foundational principle. And this one here is that the gospel of grace is vastly superior to the law. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here John is saying that Jesus is vastly superior to Moses and that the law of grace is vastly, I'm sorry, the uh, gospel of grace is vastly superior than the law. And what I want to do is I want to dig into this a little bit because this verse is really addressing the way that God deals with his people. And I want to take a moment to kind of set this framework to understand this because a lot of people wrestle with Jesus coming and replacing the law and how do these two things come and play with each other? How does the Old Testament and New Testament play with one another? So give me a moment just to kind of set this framework. So when God created everything, God created man and woman, he created perfection, right? He placed them in that garden and gave them one rule. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know that they disobeyed. And at that moment that they disobeyed, the, the, the relationship, the intimacy between God and his creation, man, you and I, was disrupted. And from that moment, manhood has been on this downward spiral ever since that moment. And then God, in his graciousness, stepped in and said, you know what, they've really messed this thing up. I'm going to start over. So God floods the earth and decides to save manhood through one person. Who was that? Noah. Noah and his family. And Noah and his family had the responsibility of reproducing and repopulating the earth. Well, they reproduced, but they never scattered to populate the earth. In fact, what they chose to do was to gather and to build a tower to try to reach God and to try to be like God, which has been man's problem all along. So that's what they were trying to do. So again, God steps in and helps them. And what does he do? He scrambles their language so they can't communicate with each other. And they're essentially forced to spread throughout the world and to govern over themselves. And then out of those people that scatter, God chooses one group of people to be his chosen people. Who was that? The Israelites. And out of that chosen group of people, God chose one man. Who was it? Abraham. 
And he promises Abraham, I am going to bless all the people of the world through you, through your line. And we know that ultimately that that blessing is going to come through one chief descendant, and that is Jesus Christ. That he would be the one that God would ultimately send to the earth to fix this relationship between him and his creation that man screwed up way back in the garden. But as we know at this time, it wasn't time for him to come yet. So in order for God to continue to draw his people to himself, he gave the law, God gave the law to Moses to govern the people. But the law was such that sinful people could not keep it. And in reality, God was using this law to show the people that they could not do it on their own. That they could not keep the law. And then when his people would finally acknowledge the fact that they can't keep the law, they would recognize their need for the Savior, which was going to be sent. Okay, Romans 5.20 puts it this way, that the law was added so that trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And then finally, in keeping his promise, God sent his son, his extension, full of grace, full of truth, to repair the relationship that man messed up in that garden long ago. This was the Savior. This was his son, Jesus, whose birth that we just celebrated on Thursday. Emmanuel, God with us. That throughout time, God's desire to be with us never has changed. As we talked about, he was, he was with them in the garden. He was with them in the tabernacle. He was with them in the temple. He comes in the form of a baby. He promises us in the book of Revelation that he will be with us and dwell with us forever. Emmanuel. So God, in his graciousness, comes and sends his son full of grace and truth to repair this relationship. Now, John writing this, right? John is writing in 90 AD. So he knows that all of this has taken place. So that's his perspective as he writes this. So when he writes verse 17, John is saying that Moses was employed by God as a servant, right? His role was to convey the moral, the ceremonial, and the servile law to the Israelites. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 5, Moses was, a faithful, was faithful as a servant in all of God's house. Right? Don't miss what Hebrews is, the writer of Hebrews is saying. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, who anointed him to be in that role, but Moses was only a servant. And even though the moral law which, which Moses brought down from Mount Sinai was holy and just and good, it could never justify. It had no healing power. It could wound, but it could never bind them up. And the law was this constant reminder of this inability to, to meet it or to fulfill it, and also the penalty that awaited them for not doing it. 
Right? Romans 4.15 says the law brings wrath. The law brings math, not math, wrath. Some of you would agree that the law brought math. My daughter being one of them. But in fact, you know, it pronounced a curse against anyone who is disobedient to it. The ceremonial law, when you look at it, you know, which God commanded over the Israelites in and of themselves, it was full of, it was full of deep meaning. There was great instruction. The ordinances and ceremonies all made for an excellent guide to Christ. Paul wrote in Galatians, so the law, 3.24, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by what? Faith. That's what we're justified by. See, the ceremonial law was only the guide, a shadow of the things to come. It could not make the man that tried to keep it perfect, and it could not clear his conscience. The writer of Hebrews, again, in um, chapter 9, verse 9, says this is an illustration for the present time, the law he's talking about, indicating that the gifts of sacrifice being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. You see, this truth is that this law laid a tremendous yoke on man's hearts, one that they were not able to bear. It was a system of death and condemnation. Now John's saying, on the other hand, Jesus came as a son, as a righteous heir. And he had the keys to God's never-ending supply of grace and truth at his disposal, at his fingertips. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 says, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Not as a servant, but as a son. And John says that Jesus comes in grace and truth. Now let's tackle both of those. He comes in grace because grace came by him when he made known God's amazing and gracious plan of salvation. That through Jesus' sacrifice, through our faith in his sacrifice, that opened up God's unfathomable mercy to the whole world. That's the grace that God bestowed on us through Jesus, that the mercy is displayed through him for everybody in the entire world. And he came by truth because he fulfilled in his own person the prophecies in the Old Testament. Remember we talked about on Christmas Eve that Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ ever came that that moment was gonna happen. Jesus came to make those things true, that he was the only true sacrifice. He was the only true priest. Now there's no doubt that there was grace and truth under the Mosaic law. I'm not gonna say that. But what I will say is that the whole of God's grace, that the whole of God's truth about redemption was never known until Jesus came into this world and died for us sinners. That is when we fully understood all of God's grace and all of God's truth. The writer of Hebrews, again, in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, puts it like this. The former regulation, 
which is the Mosaic law, is set aside. It is weakless. It is weakless. It is weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. A better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And that better hope is Jesus Christ himself. The one that comes in grace and the one that comes in truth. And that's the second of these foundational principles of our faith that we've got to rest in. That the gospel of grace is vastly superior than the law. That Jesus was vastly superior than Moses. The last of these three principles we see in the final verse of this section, verse 18. Here we see that Christ alone reveals God to man. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. No mortal man has ever seen God the Father. No man could bear the sight. Remember what Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20? He says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. But with that said, all that mortal man, all that you and I need to know about God the Father is fully revealed in God the Son. He, the one who was with God at the very beginning of time, who was pleased to take on flesh and be a sacrifice for us, has revealed all that our puny little minds can grasp about who God the Father really is. And we get to see in Christ's words, in his deeds, in his life, in his death, we see and learn all that we can possibly comprehend about the one who created the heavens and earth, who hung the stars in the sky, who created everything seen and unseen. And I believe that in his perfect wisdom, his almighty power, his unspeakable love the sinners, his incomparable holiness, and in his hatred for sin, it could never be better represented for our eyes or more clearly understood than in looking through the life of Christ and ultimately his death. Listen to Jesus' words himself captured in, by John in uh, chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. And in 14.9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That third principle is Christ alone has revealed God to man. Now, I don't know about you. That just simply blows my mind. I mean, these are deep, mysterious things that, that, that Jesus and, and God are one. That they're the same person that God somehow took on flesh and, and wept and was hungry, and was tempted, and grieved for his friend Lazarus to die. That somehow, that those are one, that's one person. But I know one thing. According to God's word, 
They are true. This is what God reveals about his son to us. Now guys, I know this is not an easy piece of scripture. These 18 verses are hard to work your way through. And because of that, what I want to do is I want to wrap up our time together on just going back over them one more time. From verse 1 through verse 18. And I don't want to read them this time responsibly. I just want you to, to really to sit and to let this really sink in. Because we really need to have a handle on really who Jesus Christ is in our lives. Because he is how we walk every single day. So just listen to these words. Listen to John's words just soak over you on what they're saying to us here. Verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now we just celebrated Christmas on Thursday, right? The birth of Jesus. A wonderful time of the year. But as Ron challenged us in the first sermon, and as John challenges us here, Jesus didn't come to be on that day. Jesus always has been. Jesus is God in substance and in person. That Jesus is God in the flesh, one in the same. Verses three through nine. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made, and that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. See, in verse 3, John starts off by saying that, yes, Jesus was in the beginning. That they were the same, but Jesus just wasn't hanging out with God. He was working with God. He was God's co-creator. He was in it with him from the very beginning. And then in verse 4 through 9, we see him coming into the world as light. And that light is to show us men and women the way to God. That came to shine light into darkness. So men and women would know how to find God the Savior. That is what John is saying right here. Look at verses 10 to 13. He was in the world and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of your human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. See, John here is saying that God came to earth in an unassuming way. He didn't come in some grand fashion, in some glorious body, in some big announced way. He came unnoticed, under the radar, and essentially unaccepted. But John goes on to say that's not all the story because some people did take notice and some people did believe in who he said he was and they became 
children of God. And in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The most significant verse in the whole Bible about the incarnation. That God himself took on flesh to be amongst his people, to fix his relationship with us. Emmanuel, as we talked about on Christmas Eve, God with us. God so desired to be with us that he took on flesh. He left perfection of heaven to take on a body and live in this fallen world on our behalf. And as we wrapped up today, John 15 to 18, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he had, he, has, he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made known to him. And then wrapping all this up, John's telling us that God sent his son in grace and truth. And in that grace and truth, they come to us in fullness. And that the waves of grace that continue to wash over us are sufficient in everything that we are. No matter what our life moment is, what's going on in our life, is that it is sufficient. Now, in the good times of our lives, that truth is really hard to, really easy to, to understand and to accept and grasp. That when, when my job is good and my marriage is going well and my kids are walking with the Lord and my mortgage payment's up to date and my family's getting along, yeah, I can accept the fact that Jesus' grace is sufficient for me. But in those times when life gets difficult, it becomes a little harder to accept the fact that Jesus alone is sufficient. This has been a tough season here at the church. We've had a lot of memorial services here over the last couple of weeks. This is the first Christmas that I've had without my grandma. But you know what? I can't say it's Jesus plus my grandma back. It can't be Jesus plus a better job. It can't be Jesus plus a better retirement plan. Jesus plus a spouse. Jesus plus a better spouse. Jesus plus children. It says Jesus comes to us, his grace is full. That as his grave, grace washes on us like waves, never ending, never ceasing, that that grace that he bestows upon us is enough. It's not Jesus plus something else. I've got to be settled that it's Jesus by himself in grace and truth that he offers. You know, it's often said 
that the hardest part of our journey is the 12 inches between our heads and our hearts. Many of us can recite these verses. Many of us know that that's what these verses say. But my question to you today is, do you believe it? Do you believe it in the bottom of your heart that the fullness of the grace of Jesus Christ is enough for you? It doesn't need to be Jesus plus cancer free. His grace is enough. So as we move into this new year, my prayer for each and every one of you this morning is that in the bottom of your heart that you can be settled and know without a doubt that his fullness of grace never stops. It's always coming regardless of what season of life you're in. And as it comes, it's perfectly sufficient where you are. And I pray that that just settles in the bottom of your heart. And that's what guides you through this new year that's approaching us. Is His fullness of grace is sufficient.